My name is Adam Roberts, and I'm a vocal coach here in the live music capital of the world, Austin, Texas. I'm on a journey to learn the stories behind extraordinary voices of people I know and what makes them unique. Each of my guests has chosen to follow their voice. So this is Cola Voce. Well, welcome everyone to Cola Voce. I am really honored and excited for our guest today. I am here with Jay Quinton Johnson, a.k.a. Q. How you doing, Q? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing really well. Thank you. And for those who have listened to the previous couple of episodes, Q has already been featured, and we're going to hear about that a little bit later, uh, not in interview format, but very thrilled to be here today to talk with Q across the miles. You're in New York uh, at the moment, right? Brooklyn. Brooklyn! Yes, love it. Which part of Brooklyn? Uh, downtown Brooklyn. I don't be knowing these these damn... I couldn't even name it neighborhood. It's like, what's it like? You got Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights. You got Flatbush. You got Park Slope. Like, I just... Like, I've been in and out of New York now for almost five years. And I think I just now have the Manhattan neighborhoods memorized. So I love it. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I think it's surprising to a lot of people who have never been to New York that it's not simply... Brooklyn. You can't get into a cab in Manhattan and say, I'm going to Brooklyn. You know, as you said, people are going to want to know Williamsburg, Diker Heights, any of the places you just mentioned. I mean, it's its own <laughs> metropolis. Oh, unto itself. If you if you get into a cab in Manhattan and you say, take me to Brooklyn, they're going to take you right over the bridge and be like, all right. <laughs> you're <in> Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Well, I wanted to start off today with talking a little bit, you, you and I have talked before sort of about your upbringing and how that has influenced your trajectory in the arts. And since this podcast is called Cola Voce, and that means follow your voice, that's really what we're talking to folks about. And I am interested to know, Q, if you could lead us through a little bit of sort of your environment growing up and how that has brought you in some ways to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely uh, a unicorn, as I as I feel like you know a lot of people in the arts self-identify. But um, very specifically, you know, I didn't grow up doing theater. You know, I I did my first show when I was maybe 15 or 16. Uh, it's almost 10 years ago now. I'm 26 now, and, and I mean, theater just like wasn't cool to me growing up. I, I grew up in in Athens, Texas, which is you know, Friday night lights, East Texas, football, sports, um, you know, nobody's thinking about the arts necessarily. Um, think about football, um, as, as is the case with, with a lot of, uh, of just Texas or, you know, it's baseball or football. Sure. Um, and for folks who are outside of Texas, could you give us a little geography of where Athens is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Athens is about two hours east of Dallas, right? And and for, for those of you Austinites who might be listening, it's three and a half hours northeast of Austin. Got it. Um, so it's a when I when I would I went to school in Austin, University of Texas at Austin, so that's why I give the proximity there as well. Um that was about a four hour drive for me, um, from college from from where I grew up. Um yeah, so I mean, in Athens, Athens felt much further even from Dallas or Austin, right? I used to go see shows at because of a of a of a theater teacher I had that was very passionate about the arts. We saw shows at Dallas Theater Center. Those were my first memories of professional theater, and we're talking about mid high school. And you know, I I started to compete in I guess my first experience with UIL um 
in those events, which is what does UIL stand for again? What is I think it's university. I know this is terrible being from ta- being in Texas and not being able to. Like, you know, really, no one ever. It's like you don't know all of the acronyms, but you can say them. You exactly. Know? Inter inter scholastic league, something like that. I, that might be it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's it. Um, but I, I like I I, remember, I did my first like I said I did my first show in Athens, Texas, like when I was fifteen. It was Once Upon a Mattress, and I was in the ensemble. And I had a theater teacher, like I said, I, mean, I, got, I got blessed with arts administrators, which is why any chance I get, I mean, I, I just, because I've been there, I've been the kid who was a teenager who just didn't think that theater was possible because mm-hmm. like, no one in my community really cared about it. And now I've, you know, like I said, I've been in New York for, for almost five years now, um, in and out of New York and Los Angeles. And I've worked with incredible filmmakers. You know, I've been, I've been to Oscar parties of, I've, I've, I've done, I've done oscar junkets you know with steve Carell and and, and brian cranston um yeah. so i'm just like i'm so far away from athens but like any like anytime i get the chance to talk about the importance of arts administrators i do because like without the band teacher that i had without the choir teacher that i had without the theater teacher that i had who knew it was so important for kids to know that arts is possible and that arts is something that we should care about i would not be where i am today and I mean, I'm just in a, a, a great example of how like because I mean, nothing else in my environment would have set me up for the career that I have. It was almost solely those <laughs> those teachers. Um, and so, yeah, they just they exposed me to a lot of the way theater worked. And like I said, the first show I did was Once Upon a Mattress and just like, what a great first show. If anybody's listening and, and you're thinking like, man, like what musicals should we do when we when we come back from this pandemic? Once Upon a Mattress is a high recommendation for me. Um, it is fantastic, it, isn't it? It's so, so incredible. I mean, like just like the like when you talk about like what musicals have to offer in terms of popular music mixed with what feels like traditional musical theater what have you i'm like there's so much room like when you talk about like up cardi b right if it's up then it's up 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 but and then you talk about like opening for a princess we got a opening for a princess like what an opportunity yes. to take something that could be elevated like if you had a kid that's in your in your program that's like i really want to get into arranging and they don't know what arranging is like once upon a mattress is such a great musical to say it can be elevated by the conventions of today musically and what a great place to explore for any young people who are like man i I think i want to do theater but i don't really know what you know what's out there i think once upon a mattress is just such a great like middle ground of like it's not you know quite um south pacific uh and it's not hamilton it's it's like it's like nestled right in between and you can can kind of branch out from there well you Um, know what i love about the fact that you bring up that example is because you remind me very much you know we've talked about this a lot in the past your passion for having that marriage and and having that conduit of the old and the possible and you know for people who are listening who are unaware mary rogers gettle who was the daughter of richard rogers of rogers and hammerstein wrote the score for Once Upon a Mattress, fairly uncommon to have a female composer during those days. Uh, Very uncommon, not fairly in the musical theater. And then, you know, she very much was a colleague of Stephen Sondheim, who he consulted on company. So she was in that place. And I think she'd probably be happy to hear that, you know, her work as a as a person as a conduit from the old to the new itself is reflected and that someone would use that example of that work. I totally agree. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's, we gotta, we gotta, we have to invest more in our arts administrators. We just, we just have to, um, cause again, I, I, I wouldn't be here. Um, yeah. And so that was my first show. And you, I mean, it just, just opened the floodgates. I mean, like, again, like the end of that show, it's like, well, it was like that just, they have like that huge note. Oh man. It's like, it's escaping me. Uh, oh, for a genuine princess is exceedingly like it's just like when you like come on like there's yes no then just like singing at the top of your range like with 30 other people who are just like you know like and it's so epic for this seemingly simple story you know it's, it's, it's so amazing but like you can like you can do that in musical theater right like you can make you can make the idea of like of a plant from an alien planet who's going to consume the world because of like, you're like afraid that the girl next, like that you work with doesn't like you. Like, yeah, you can make that a musical and you can make that bigger than it may seem like, uh, like if you were to do little shop as a play, right? Like there's just a scope that you can't quite crack without the convention of music. Um, And I, I think that's, probably why I you know, is again like and like I was never interested I, I never saw myself as like oh like I'm you know like this whole division in our in our study of like straight acting versus mm-hmm. you know musical theater I'm like everybody should be learning about music period like you know maybe you're not going to pursue it professionally but in terms of arts in terms of just the economy of where the money is going like I think you have to know something about that and again musical theater is just such a, a fun learning ground for those things as it was for me in doing once upon a mattress because when we did once upon a mattress it just opened the floodgates for me and i just was like i have to know everything about this art form because it was just so fun it was so stinking fun and you know did uil and then uil is kind of what took me to austin i was like well i guess if i'm gonna go to school like austin is the only big city that i really know outside of dallas so i mean moving to austin was was a big step for me because athens is 12,000 people. I graduated wow. with a, a 170 people, uh, roughly. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I ended up in Austin and again, got poured into by great arts administrators and great arts educators, um, at, at my school at university of Texas at Austin, you know, music directors like yourself, uh, Alan Robertson. Um, yeah, just got, I mean, was there off of a scholarship from, um, Tom Turkell, I, I believe. So the Turkells really poured into me. Um, yeah. And like, I mean, and was only in Austin for like two years before I, I did my first film with Richard Linklater, which was everybody wants some. Uh, and so off I was again, like I was, I did my first film and then like, I was like, I needed to know what an agent was and I needed to like know what, what it, what it meant to um, have a manager. And, and, you know, then I found myself in LA a year after that movie, like for the first time ever in my life, I had never really, I had like taken road trips out of Texas before, but I had never like been to LA or never really been to New York. Um, and here I was like at, in LA at the Paris Paramount lot watching a movie that I was in (laughs) it just I mean like like the palm like everything that you imagine from like those movies like the palm trees and like you're in special cars and you're at fancy hotels I mean like I love telling the story about the standard um in LA for anybody's listening that's been to the standard in Los Angeles they have they have like human art so like you check in and there's someone in a glass (laughs) container behind the desk it's just a person just sitting there and like I don't know if they still have it but when I moved there I was like is that a is that just a person behind you, like reading a book? And he's like, yeah, this is our human art. And I was like, we aren't in Texas anymore. We are not. (laughs) Go ahead, Los Angeles. Like, go (laughs) ahead. Like, I was like, I can't believe this. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, like I said, Los Angeles and then New York happened shortly after. And I mean, it just, I mean, again, it's like so many small micro steps, but it's like I went from Athens, Texas, having never lived in another city to living in New York City, bi-coastal in L.A. And I, all of that happened relatively fast for me, which is, as I originally said, like I'm a little bit of a unicorn because my experience is not typical, you know, right? Like a lot of there's a, a lot of lore in our industry of like, yeah, you got to work at it for like 10 years. And then you're like, maybe going to start getting things, which um. I mean, as I've also talked with other people in the industry, right, like I, I, I think that that concept also is very limiting potentially to people who are like, well, I, I really want to do this. But like when if you if all you hear is the horror stories of like, well, you're going to work for 20 years and maybe not get anything. It's like, sure, but you get like what's also possible is my trajectory, right? It may not be common, but it is possible. And I feel like with theater, sometimes all you need to know is what's possible and to to be able to go for it. I think that that is so true. And, you know, one of the things that happens a lot in musical theater, I think, is these sort of myths or mythical journeys that people standardize in the way that the career is talked about and the way that the industry is talked about. And one of the things that I hope for the industry is that some of that breaks down because there is no one way. There just, and there never has been one way. But we like to be able to counsel people. And because we like to be able to counsel people, we like to say, well, this is what you need to do step by step by step by step. And if you don't do these things, and that just is not the case. No, it is not. So you found yourself in, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, you found yourself in LA and Andy Blankenbuehler, the choreographer of Hamilton, was in the same building. Is this correct? Am I right about this? <laughs> well, I had I had worked with Andy on, okay. a, on a film, right? Yeah. But, then, okay. but like had worked with Andy on a film. It was Dirty Dancing. It was a remake of Dirty Dancing we did uh, for ABC, which like still exists in the world if you're a, a very curious person. But like, yeah, that was his first project. This Dirty Dancing was the first thing he did after Hamilton. Okay, so got it. he had yeah he had done Hamilton for like eight months I think it was like itching to do something else I somehow got to be a part of this film this is where I met you know Nicole Scherzinger I met Abigail Breslin I met Sarah Hyland like all these incredible people and Andy was the choreographer but like I was but like I was doing this film but like I was still very I think I was like oh man how old was I like twenty one years old wow. and I was like loved all that Hamilton represented and was like I watched the Tonys for the first time when Hamilton like you know was was up for nominations and like again but like we did Dirty Dancing before Hamilton went to the Tonys so like the relationship that was forged was like here was this choreographer that I was like hugely a fan of I had did in the Heights and in, in college at the University of Texas I knew that he did bring it on um like I was just so, I obviously knew he did Hamilton and I was such a fan of his and could barely talk to him the entire shoot yeah and, like, one day because like, oh, Richard Linklater actually got tickets for me to go see Hamilton, which at that time was going to be my first Broadway show ever to see. Oh my gosh, but gosh. I was told I couldn't leave set to go. Like and it was, it was supposed to be a weekend that I had off, but I was told I couldn't leave set to go watch Hamilton because Andy needed me for a rehearsal that Saturday. So it was, <laughs> it was like that's kind of like how our relationship was forged was like me being so scared to talk to him about Hamilton, and then like him being like, well. Well, you're perfect for the show, so we need to we need to just like make that happen. So reluctantly, like over the course of you know, um, again this very tenuous relationship, we kind of had we hit it off. But I had never auditioned for Hamilton before. Okay, like I had this co-sign from him, and so I did find myself after like 
he like got me tickets to see the show and so I saw it and I cried and, and like everybody was on because it was like the week of the Tonys and so it was like Lynn's there and Chris is there and Leslie and that's David and that's Renee and that's Pippa like oh my god like everybody was there and so like I had an audition I think in that June in New York it was like my first audition ever in New York City like I know like <laughs> a lot of people can like hear the trajectory of my career and be like oh like you just had it but I was like no 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 like I was like I was a, a like a, a baby coming in like anybody else nobody really knew everybody wants some dirty dancing everybody's like it's gonna be an adaptation nobody cares so like I was just in New York like having my first audition at Telsey with no theater credits whatsoever other than the regional theater that I had done auditioning at Telsey for Hamilton just as nervous as anybody else like I have no reason to you know succeed other than kind of sort of this guy knows me but like didn't hear anything for several months and then like found myself in LA not really with a callback it was just like a second audition like they didn't I'd never heard anything after my first audition I think it was like in June and I found myself in LA in October and I was just going in for an audition. I think I'd gone in for one of the casting directors at Telsey and I got a call back. But I hadn't really heard from Andy. Like, I, like none of that relationship was, like, being fostered after I left the set of Dirty Dancing. Mm -hmm. Over the course of June, obviously, they win the Tony, incredible Tonys. It blows up even more than it already had. And then I found myself months later in, in L.A., like, just for another audition. It's like, here I go, like, submitted, you know, whatever, here, here I go. Um, and like got past the first casting director and like, I have this callback and like, I get an email saying like, it'll be Tommy, you know, Thomas Kale, Alex Lockmore at this callback. And I'm like, okay, yeah. Okay. Sweet. Like this, I guess this is real deal. Like, yeah, I, was, I was like, I guess this is like a good place to be. Like I did, I just didn't know because, and Adam, you can obviously speak to this. It's like what coming from auditioning for theater in Austin, you just kind of auditioned for it. And like the people that were there to make the decisions normally were, were there in the room, right? It, it's not, you know, a multiple levels process as it is typically on, on Broadway. Right. And so, but my email only said that Lack and Tommy would be there. And in my mind, I was like, well, Andy's off doing, I, don't, I didn't know what he was doing at the time. But so I was sitting in the, like in the waiting room at this place in LA and I'm like, I'm sitting in this chair and it was like me and this other kid for, you know, I just, I guess that's where they were at in those appointments that day. And he like looks over my shoulder and he's like, Hey, I, is that I'm like, dude? And I was like, what? I was like, what's, what's going on? He's like, dude, I think that's the choreographer. And like in my head, I was like, obviously I, I'm like, Andy, like in my head, I'm thinking Andy Blankenbuehler, but like, it, I guess that kid, you know, it's like when you think like, Oh, that's so, you know, sure. and so I, I turn over my shoulder and of course I see Andy and I have the relationship with him. So I was like, Hey, Andy. <laughs> and he was like, thank you. And I was like, uh, how, how's it go? Like I hug, he hugs me and I'm like, I, again, I haven't sp spoken to him since he had got me ticket. Like we didn't even, he got like, we did dirty dancing in April and he got me tickets to see Hamilton in June. Like I hadn't spoken to him since we wrapped in April. So like wow. I didn't hear from him in May. I got the tickets to see the show in June. Didn't see him that whole trip there. July, August, September, October. And so now I'm here, I see him, he hugs me. I'm like, oh, hey, how's it going? I'm blah, blah, blah. I haven't seen you in five months. And he's like, oh, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm just going to I'm gonna go in and watch when you go in. And I was like, oh, <laughs> what? Oh, like, again, yeah, he wasn't there for it. Like, it was like, no, like he had just come in, like almost essentially behind me. Sure. Checks in and is like, yeah, I'm going to come watch you. I'm going to come sit in with Alex and Tommy when you go in. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll see you in there. And then like, I go back and I sit down with the guy who was, who was like, that's the choreographer. And he was just like, dude, <laughs> 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 what, 
what? And I was like, I, I, yeah, like we did a movie together like months ago. And he's like, dude, what? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And, I, and then I went in there with Andy Blankenbuehler, Tommy Kale, and Alex Lackamore. And they like put me through the ringer, man. Like it was like Tommy, Tommy was doing his notes. And then Lack would do his notes. And then Andy, who again was not supposed to be there. Sure. From my mind, from my knowledge, was like not supposed to be there. Andy was like also like giving me like, hey, like, could you try this role? Say, like, how about this role? How about like, you know, it was like he he really had in his mind that I could potentially do like a Lafayette Jefferson. So like I did that. Um ah. with the the mulligan material that I had already been doing. And then after I was done with my audition, Andy just like Andy went to some other studio and was like working with dancers. I was like, see, so you just came in to just just watch me literally today right now (laughs) about how long was that that audition process in the room that day for you 30 minutes 30 minutes yeah yeah they're like go in i mean it's like you're waiting they bring you in and it was similar for for wicked years later um but it's like when you're there with those like people who you're going to be working with they need to make sure that they can work with you so it's like yeah you're gonna do it once there may be some adjustments. You're gonna do it again. I'm like, cool. Let's try this just to try to like see how you do some you deal with something that like mm, this may not be what you use in the show, but like let's find out. And then great, it's like that person's satisfied. And then like the music directors are like, hey, so like this this note, could you try this with this rhythm and blah blah blah. And like, mm, let's try this option. Let's try. It's like great. They check that off, and then, like you know, it kind of like goes down the line. But yeah, they're they're trying to see what you're like. At least in my experience, when you get to that level with the actual director or with that associate director or the associate music supervisor, whoever it is that's making these decisions there. And, and then they're filming you to send to, you know, the producers and whatever. That way, when they say, hey, like, hey we're thinking about this kid and the producing be like, cool, like I know who's going to be in in my show. Right um, there. Yeah, they're working with you at that, at that stage. Amazing. Yeah. So you get the offer. And what does that feel like? Because, you know, one of the things that if folks who are listening are not as familiar with sort of like musical theater culture, if you will, so many kids start very young, not everyone, but they start very young in a dance studio or in their school plays and things like that in elementary school. They do Tony watch parties every year. You literally have seen your first Tony Awards with Hamilton. Yeah. Now you're going to get an offer for Hamilton on Broadway. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, and again, like all of that was in the same six months. Like wow. it was like I had I worked with Andy in April, saw the show in June. The Tonys were the next week. I saw them like in Austin. I had just seen the show. I was back in Austin watching the Tonys. I was in L.A. in October auditioning for what I thought was going to be the L.A. company. Mm. And then so I was like, I was like, oh, like L.A., like they have Broadway, they had Chicago at the time. I was like, I'm auditioning for the L.A. company who, with, when they were getting ready to to mount that in a few months. And so they, like I said, this is October. I think it was like I was getting ready to work on my second film with Richard Linklater. Um, so I was going to be in Pittsburgh shooting that. So like I was getting ready to go to Pittsburgh. I think towards the end of October, early November ish. And I'm like getting, I'm getting, I'm like working on trying to understand camera equipment. Cause I'm like, I'm just gonna like make my own stuff. Like I'm like, I'm just gonna like work. Cause again, at, th- at this point I'm like, I'm thinking like, I'm going to shoot the movie with Link later, but I'm like, I-, I don't know what I'm going to do after that. Like it was going to be a month of work. And then I was like, I have no plans after that. So like, let me just be proactive. And the call comes in and they're like, Hey, like, I mean, I think I gotten like one follow-up email from casting being like, yeah, they're great, like considering him for a spot in the LA company. Okay, like I just, you know, I'll wait. You wait a week, you wait two weeks, and you're like, they're never gonna call me back. <laughs> um, 
And like, and I think I initially, like, even before all of this started, I think I sent in like a video from one of their cattle call video submissions <laughs> that like they <laughs> never saw. Um, <laughs> you go from sending a video into the ether to seeing the guys being there. You're like, it's going to be yes or no. And the weeks just drag on and drag on. And I think it was like two or three weeks after I had done that audition, I was back in Texas getting camera equipment. I had gotten, the, like I said, the follow-up email maybe a week after I'd left L.A. about like, hey, yeah, like they're considering you for L.A. And I get, I'm like, my phone's going crazy. It's like, bzz, 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 bzz. like I wasn't looking at my phone because I was like, I got to understand these cameras and I got to understand aperture and all those other kind of stuff. I'm going to be a filmmaker. It's like my phone's going crazy. I'm getting texts from my agent. I'm getting emails from my manager. I'm like, what is happening, guys? Like I'm trying, like I told you I was going to be looking at cameras today. And so my person comes on from New York City. And they're calling me and they're like, hey, Q's like, yeah, like with Hamilton, um, like uh, just quick question, just like so we know, um, like in terms of like, you know, our options here, uh, like how do you feel about making your Broadway debut in New York in Hamilton as Hercules Mulligan James Madison? And I was like, that'd be cool if like if that like I don't they're considering me for L.A. So I don't I'm not sure why you're bringing this up to me. Right. Um, and she was like, well, cool, because you're going to do that. <laughs> I, was like, Wait a minute. I was like, what are you talking about? Because they were like surprise oak who was still doing the role like this is how close it all was right like the tonys yeah. happened in june and the original cast was just like leaving you know it was like chris had left and the blah 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 and, like, and like oak was one of the last people to leave and he wasn't he didn't end up leaving until december but it's like in november i'm getting ready to shoot this movie and like my people are like yeah oak put in his notice and like for anybody that's listening that may not know what that is like you put in notices to leave you know your broadway show and nobody knew nobody knew that he was leaving yeah, the show and when he put in his notice, I guess I had impressed the creatives enough to replace him. And so they made me that offer in November. And I was in rehearsal. I had like done a week and a half with Steve Carell, Brian Cranston, Lawrence Fishburne on, on Last Flag Flying. And then I was flying to New York to like begin my rehearsals in Hamilton in like mid-November after having seen my first Broadway show, which was Hamilton in June and seeing my first Tony's ever, which was later in June. A whirling dervish. It was insane. And then I made my Broadway debut January 6th. Incredible. Crazy. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you said, and as I want to get to a little bit later, you have such a passion for mentoring and for education of young people and encouragement of young people and their talents. And I think that this story in and of itself goes to show exactly what you were just saying. Yes, it's hard work. Yes, you taught yourself to play the piano. Yes, all of those things are part of it. And also that yes, and sometimes these things can happen out of the blue in ways you never expected. Yes. And yeah, you because you want it to be that, right? Like you want it to be you're doing your thing. And then these things come in and surprise you as opposed to like sitting there and like, well, I hope someone gives me a opportunity to tell a story today. It's like, if that's your perspective, it's going to be very difficult for you to last in this business. And so much of this business is just lasting. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. And speaking of that, you have continued with your Broadway trajectory um, post Hamilton as well. Yes. Yeah, no, I guess I, you know, I, I did, um, uh, I guess it's just, yeah, just two now, two officially under my belt. Yeah. Um, did Choir Boy, uh, which is, which is a, a play written by Oscar award winner Terrell Alvin McCraney, um, of Moonlight. 
Yeah. He had a play called Choir Boy, and and I at the time I was doing Benny uh, again in 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 anticipation of the In the Heights movie, which is coming out soon. I was I did Benny for the second time in Washington D.C. with Anthony Ramos, with Lynn watching, with Lack watching. Chris Jackson came by for a rehearsal. He actually came downstairs one day. It was like after the first act, and he came downstairs at the Kennedy Center in Washington D.C. And he comes to he, you know he's giving Anthony love because they all you know did Hamilton together, and he he looks in my dressing room and he like shakes my hand. This is probably my third time meeting Chris and he shakes my hand and he goes you trying to take my job <laughs> amazing I'm like, no god no, of course not what do, you, what do you mean um but so I had I was finishing up in the heights at the Kennedy Center when I got an email about choir boy um what was crazy is like I went in for like a different role than I ended up actually doing but it was like again another long audition process to see uh, you know, Jason Michael Webb was our was our music director for that. It was a it was a play with music, but music was a really big part of that show. And um, yeah, I went in several times, and then I had my second Broadway show <laughs> coming up, right? And so we did we did Choir Boy on Broadway as a limited run, but we did get nominated for the Tony for best play. Um, Jason won for for it was like they created like a special Tony for him for those arrangements for that show. Camille, who was our who was our choreographer on that, was nominated for for best choreography for a play. Right, so it was just a lot of incredible things, and and that show was a uh, a lot of really cool people saw that show just because it was such a small and intimate thing, and, and then we performed on the Tonys, and it was, it was like I guess it was like two Tonys apart. I can't remember, but like, yeah, then I was performing on the Tonys, which I had only just seen really for the first time, like two or three years prior. And that was just insane. I remember like doing the Tonys and like being at the Tonys and performing at the Tonys. But then we were like ushered in a bus, like back to our theater to watch sure. the Tonys. Like you don't get to like, just because you're performing at the Tonys for any, for anybody that like, has dreams of performing on the Tonys, just because you're performing at the Tonys doesn't mean you get to watch the Tonys <laughs> at the Tonys. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. I think that surprises a lot of people. We were sitting there nominated, and I was like, yeah, like we're going to the Tonys, right? I was like, nah, like you're actually just going to perform, and then you're going to like get out of there. I was like, what? Come on. Amazing. Um, yeah, and so like I, I think I we like performed on the Tonys, and then like, like we were in a van back to our theater. I like got my backpack and was uptown with friends watching the end of the Tonys. Like I had just performed on it and like got to see the tail end of the, of the, of the show, like uptown, just like chilling with friends later that night. Like, so, so incredibly crazy. And then I'm, and then now, you know, since the pandemic, like I, I had come back, I had asked to, to come back to Hamilton. And so officially uh, I have Hamilton under my belt again. So I Hamilton fantastic. now back to Hamilton. And so whenever this health stuff gets figured out, I'll, I'll be back at Hamilton. Congratulations. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Staying on that um, Broadway train for one uh, moment longer, I would love to ask you, um, as someone who is now based in New York City, as someone who has had Broadway success, as someone who is also very passionate about education and arts education and access to those things, I would like to ask you, what your hopes, I'm sure this could be like three hours long podcast with this, what your hopes and dreams are for either specifically Broadway or commercial theater on the whole in the United States moving forward? Yeah, I just hope that the, that we shift the idea of commercial theater away from this amorphous idea of the premium ticket buyer. 
the premium ticket buyer, I, th- I think in a lot of people's subconscious is the affluent middle-aged white person. And because we produce material for that quote unquote premium ticket buyer, the material skews white and middle age and middle class. Yes. It's nothing that anybody is doing on purpose. I do believe that. But I think that, again, when we talk about systemic racism, we talk about institutional racism, the system that I just illustrated of, well, we're we're talking about premium ticket buyers and we're talking about commercial, which means we got to make money, right? The people historically who have had money in this country and in the world are white people. Right. So it's not that anybody's racist. It's not that it's not that anybody doesn't want to see more marginalized people with power. But the institution that is geared toward catering to the quote unquote premium ticket buyer has yielded positions of power and positions of economic gain toward that person right that premium ticket buyer so in order to shift that we have to first of all acknowledge who we're talking about when we say premium ticket buyer and when we say that we also have to recognize that the premium ticket buyer isn't the end goal Mm -hmm. goal, like was mark zuckerberg concerned about the premium ticket buyer when he made facebook you know what i mean like he made a service that commanded people's attention Facebook has so many users, and he used the user base to monetize into the billions of dollars he now has, sell ads, blah, blah, blah. If we start to look at, well, the person that's actually the most commercial is the person commanding the most attention, I think we can start to change how we view commercial theater. Because when you look at the billboard charts of the last year, right, since theater hasn't happened and people have continued to make music and release music, when you look at what's consistently been in the top 10, or not even consistently, it's, it's, it shifts every, every week, every Friday. But when you look at the, the money that has been generated by simply being in, in the top 10 on the Billboard charts, and you look at that style of music, and you look at what it means to get those songs placed on commercials, and you look at what it means to have those songs on the Grammys or, or whatever it is, those people are making money. They're making more money than a lot of Broadway producers are making, if you're talking about A&Rs and people that are you know in the music business. Because I feel like those people, um, and those people are still typically, you know, middle-aged and white, but those people understand that it's not so much about catering to historically has the means, it's about catering to anybody that's going to watch it. You have to command attention in order to be able to have something that's commercial. And that's what Hamilton has showed us, right? It's like Hamilton in its conceit, other than possibly that it's a historical musical, wasn't made with or i won't say that it wasn't made with the premium ticket buyer in mind but it wasn't trying to pander to them it said i'm gonna make something that's interesting and i think that because it's interesting it will command attention and commanding attention is really the driving force of all things monetary right i'm like when you look at the people who have the most wealth they've commanded the most attention or have given the most useful service you know, when you look at Elon, when you look at Jeff Bezos. So if these people can do something that that gives them mega, mega wealth, billions of dollars, and again, looking at something like Facebook, which is free, free to users, how in the world is it, are we not paying money and this dude's making billions of dollars? So I just think that there's a way that we can restructure the way we think, okay, well, like when we think like what's going to sell, what's going to sell, we can just have different conversations about that because 
however old she is, Olivia Rodrigo, quote unquote, sold the the most singles for four or five weeks straight for her first single ever released in driver's license. So that sold. Was she worried about the premium ticket buyer? No. And also, again, music has a wider reach than Broadway. You can only consume Broadway on Broadway. But because music can be consumed anywhere, and like driver's license was what, 99 cents, $1.29, whatever songs are sold for, whatever your premium membership is, if you're streaming it from Spotify or whatever, I'm like, the number of streams that that young woman got from that song, like, let's look at the revenues that that generates, and let's look at the revenue that that generates when it's on that commercial, and when it's on that thing, and when it's on them, when it's on it. Because if we can start thinking about art and creation in that way, I think we're going to start seeing more musicals that look like Driver's License and more musicals that look like Up by Cardi B and more musicals that sound like Leave the Door Open by Bruno Mars and Anderson Pock of Silk Sonic. Like, we have to start realizing that, oh, people are not only just listening, but consuming. Like, the Billboard is just an aggregation chart, right? It's saying, here's what people are buying. Here's what people are listening to. Here's what's happening. And so when we realize that what's happening is how we're going to generate dollars commercially, is how we're going to get, oh, if we're, if we're saying, like, we need you to pay $50 to come see this thing, we have to start there. We have to start with realizing that commercial can look like a very different thing than I think we've typically thought it can be with respect to theater. And then we have to figure out how to make it more accessible. If you can only watch Broadway in New York City in these theaters, when, again, right now during this pandemic, that doesn't exist, what happens? You have all of these artisans, all of these technicians, all of these actors who are out of work. But if you're lucky enough to be a part of the film industry, these people are still working. And again, I think a lot of it's unions. I think a lot of it's like just a lot of people being, again, very pigheaded. But I'm like, the opportunities that we had to potentially have new streamable content that feels still Broadway. It's like, no, we're not trying to take away the ephemeral nature of theater and it's here now and gone tomorrow. It's like, you can expire links. <laughs> you know, pay me $20 to watch this for a week and then it's go and it goes away. Like we can, there's, Technology has is with us on that, but it's like we have to have those conversations to figure out like, yeah, who are the people that are going to just like with concerts? Concerts have been doing this forever. It's like, yeah, people are going to see Beyonce live and they're going to be able to listen to whatever they want to from Beyonce at any time and still go spend a thousand dollars to see her live. So we, we have to figure that out as Broadway to figure out, yeah, like what's the buy in to see the live stream of this show, this show tonight, not just Hamilton on, you know, like we've seen Shrek on Netflix and Hamilton on Disney Plus, And there is that mode and that, you know, medium for shows that it makes sense for. But there's also just other ways. Like, again, music evolved so much over this past year about who consumes it, how they consume it, uh, you know, where you're buying it, like all of these different things. And Broadway's just like, no, you got to come see us on Broadway. And it's like, that's Broadway's right. Not- happening now like you know what i mean like we just had an opportunity to really think about how we get this out to people because if we capitalize on all of the people who want to see things and want to engage maybe it's not seeing that full show but it's like yeah releasing that cover with that new cast of defying gravity it's like how many great alphabets have we had now but it's only idina menzel in terms of the streaming of it it's like you have to go find the youtube video of shoshana or whoever it is you're like, no, producers, like, why don't you, like, spend a couple thousand, like, have that person's version of just that single, not the whole album, don't do a cast album every time you turn over the cast, but I'm like, why don't you, you know, like, or, and again, maybe not all of these things are economically viable, but I'm like, if we're talking about ways to monetize what we do 
to compete with the businesses of music and to compete with the businesses of movies, which we are like, I mean, you could go look at the numbers, like in terms of what we bring in, in the global economy of entertainment, Broadway is, it's embarrassing. We bring in like, it's like a half a percent or something crazy like that of like the, you know, 700 billion, whatever it is. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's embarrassing how much Broadway contributes to the global entertainment industry. Don't even get me started with e-gaming. Oh my God. E-gaming like embarrasses all of us. <laughs> um, but it's like, but again, like you look at e-gaming you look at music you look at movies that have all shifted to streamers it's like oh it's like yeah like this huge movie that we spent 200 million dollars on well hbo max like you have to just pull the plug at some point and realize that there are monetization paths outside of what you thought it had to be and it can still honor all that theater is supposed to be um but we have to we have to start having those conversations well, exactly what you just said, it can still honor what theater has to be because the reality of it is theater is a very expense heavy proposition. So if you can't balance that sheet at the end of the day, commercial or nonprofit, then you have to start asking exactly what you just said. What is the value proposition here and how does that become relevant? Because I think that relevance is truly a large part of what there's this really wonderful book by um, Nina, uh, Simon, I believe her last name is, I can't remember for sure, but it's called the art of relevance. Really fantastic. I just really feel like it so hits on, I can't read it about it without thinking about theater. <laughs> um, or I can't read the book rather without thinking about theater, because I think it is so on the nose about exactly the things that you were just saying. And if we can't find that pathway, then we have to start asking the questions about how is this relevant? Absolutely. I mean, if you have 10,000 theoretical people that all want to give you money for something, for some product. And you're saying, ah, but only 500 of you can make it inside this building. So sorry, the other nine, you know, 9,500 of you, you either have to be in the next group of 500 to get inside this building, or we're not going to take your money. It's like, you're leaving money on the table at that point. Like what's the media that you can create so that all 10,000 of those people. And again, maybe the 500 people that are coming in. Yeah. They're paying you the $250, but it's like, how much better is it to have $250 from 500 people? And then $50 from the other 9,500 than just 250 from 500 people. You sure. know what I mean? So it's like, you can't leave money on the table. And I think that Broadway has and does and i get the reasons why but like that's why we struggle because we have to we have to make things that we think are commercial and then like the people that are in charge of what's commercial are gonna go do you know pretty woman the musical or you know the third revival of you know music man or whatever it is not that i'm not excited about those kinds of things but i'm like when it just feels like that's all i'm seeing and like, that's what we're going to like bat with in terms of like, here's like the best of what we have to offer. It's like, nah. Well, and you have this passion also as a creator. And I think I probably knew you first as a creator and as a budding creator of music and of stories. And I know that storytelling is very, very important to you. And before we transition a little bit to talking a little bit about arts education and access, I want to ask you a question that I asked my good friend, Michelle Alexander, a couple of episodes ago on this uh, podcast. And that is from the standpoint of being a Black artist, either as a creator or as a performer or in any other way, is there such thing as a, quote, Black voice? Mm -hmm. I think personally, 
that the that the black voice is whatever is coming out of a black mouth. You know, um, if you have a black performer that sounds like Frank Sinatra and like, you know, or or um, 1920s flapper, it's like that's Mm -hmm. a black voice. If you have a creative behind the table who is black, you know, who says, oh, well, I, you know, I, I need something to look like this or something look like that. It's like that also is a black voice. Right. It's like you're not a you're not a you don't have a black voice as a director if you're not talking about gospel or if you're not talking about chitlins or whatever. It's like, no, the diaspora is so wide that, like, if you are a black person existing in America, you have a black voice artistically and actually your real voice that in terms of the sounds you produce. Sure. Where I think we potentially get into trouble is that when you use the black body as a representation of a black voice, but don't acknowledge what that black body has had to do in order to exist and what that what that conditioning does to the black voice, then we we get into trouble because like soul is a perfect example of this. Mm-hmm. We had black bodies on screen. We had quote unquote black voices behind the table, and yet we still saw a black man in the body of a cat. This is an Oscar award winning film. We right. saw a black man in the body of a cat and a white woman in the body of a black man with her white voice. And that happened with black people at the table. Right. But again, but again, a pic- oh, but look at all these black, look at all these black voices we had at the table. So like, this is, this is black. Come on, black people. Like black monolith, people. Monolith, monolith. You know, yeah. it's like, Black people said to do this. So this is the way it's supposed to be done. It's like, no, because black people in all of of our forms, all across the diaspora, have different proximities to whiteness and therefore may or may not be aware of the conditioning that affects our imaginations and that affects the sounds we make. For years, when I when I started studying, like it was people thought just because I was, you know, I was a straight leading man, whatever you want to call it. And so people kept shoving Brian Stokes Mitchell at me, mm. which is love Stokes. But like sure. when I got to college, all I knew how to sound like was whatever that stuff is. But like I was unable to make the sounds of another black man, Christopher Jackson. Sure. I was unable to make those sounds by virtue of like only ever having studied with white people. Yes. And so was my classical sound black? Yes. Was it representative? Like if you put me up on stage and like, I'm, you know, doing whatever I'm doing, can you like limit the black voice to like what I'm doing in that moment? No, because like my voice is a representation of all of the white people that I've studied with. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, you also can't say that the person that's up there like singing the riffs and and like whatever it is, you also can't say that that voice is, again, exclusively black because it's like, oh, well, church and like, you know, you're singing black and whatever that is. I'm like, well, no, that's just that black person's experience. And my experience up until I started to learn about soul and R&B and gospel was a different sound. And creatively, right, like your experiences with all different types of people is going to color what your voice, your actual voice does and what your artistic voice chooses to highlight. And so there just has to be like more understanding that like, but if it comes from a black person, from a person who is seen in this world as black, 
then it's a black voice, right? Like it just it, it, it like can never be defined by someone who isn't black. And even that starts to get difficult because like you have people that read black, you have people that are treated as black people in society that may experientially not have a lot of ties to black culture, right? When we talk about biracial um, black people who've lived predominantly with their white parent, who may not, you know, understand a lot of black cultural references because like they've been with a white parent for most of their life. Our ex-president Barack Obama is, it belongs in that camp. And a lot of debate in the black community was, well, is he black? You know, his white mom, most of his dad wasn't in the picture who's black. So there, there's a lot of debate there, but I just, I don't think that the definition of the black voice can be talked about by any other than a, a black person. Because, yeah, that's where, and again, black people are not always going to be equally equipped to talk about that or talk about their experiences, right? Like, I've only in the last year have I been able to accurately explain my position as a black artist with the sounds I make and with the artistic choices I make. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of Cola Voce. And until next time, remember follow your heart and follow your voice.